0: Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This week I've been paying attention to warnings, and I've been looking at warning labels. You know, if you read some of these warning labels nowadays, it can be quite entertaining. These are a couple I came across this week. A Batman costume, left over from Halloween, had on it mask and chest plate are not protective, cape does not enable user to fly. A cartridge for my computer for a printer says do not eat toner. I was glad I had already had lunch before I was installing it. A label on a 13-inch wheel on a a wheel, a 13-inch wheel on a wheel wheelbarrow warns not intended for highway use. A dishwasher Carries this warning do not allow children to play in the dishwasher. A household iron warns never iron clothes while they are being worn. Now, if reading those warnings don't make you wonder about the world, And what kind of people need such warnings? Then we just have to turn on the news, the evening news. Well, and then we hear about other situations, other situations that actually might need warnings, global warmings, wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other parts of the world, terrorist threats throughout the world, and the economic meltdown and I've noticed that Hollywood is picking up on this sense of doom and despair. One of the big movies that Hollywood is capitalizing right now is 2012. I haven't seen it but it's an apocalyptic movie that deals with I guess the Mayan calendar that the world will end in 2012 and there's also other movies, The Road and The Book of Eli which, and other documentaries which talk about the economic or environmental doom which this world is destined to encounter. Terry Gilliam, some of you may know from Monty Python fame, who also created the 1995 movie, 12 Monkeys, where a a plague wiped out almost all of humanity in the world, wrote about this obsession that Hollywood seems to have with apocalyptic themes. He says, we always need a boogeyman. We always need the end of the world. He goes on to say, I think it's the problem of being in a Christian society. It's based on it. If you don't have the end of the world, you don't get heaven and eternity. So, in an effort to be countercultural, we turn aside from these crazy warning labels and this apocalyptic Hollywood film concepts. And so we turn to Luke, or Dr. Luke, as I love Marietta referred to him this morning, and say, please give us some hope. Hope amidst all of these conflicts, all of these dooms. And then we read Luke's text, and I tell you, it could be a text for a Hollywood film on the same genre of other apocalyptic films. There's no virgin expecting a child. There's no mute father of John the Baptist. There are no shepherds abiding in their fields. No heavenly choir. None of the things we expect and, I think, look forward to during Advent. Instead, we find an Advent text full of warnings There will be signs in the sun, Jesus says, the moon and the stars and on earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What kind of advent is this? And how do we welcome one of the most beloved times of the years if this is our text? If this is our guide into this Advent season? The apocalyptic revealing end that Jesus describes in today's Gospel reading in Luke really does contain, when we read them intensely, some fearful cataclysmic events. Now I have never participated in an earthquake or been there. I guess you don't participate in one, you're a victim of one. But I've never been a part of an earthquake or a typhoon or anything like that. But those who have truly do feel as though the world is coming to an end when it happens. And now while some warnings, like the ones that I read earlier in the sermon, might seem downright ridiculous, there are some warnings in this world and perhaps in this Bible, that are truly for our own good and for us to pay attention to. And so I'd like to think that Jesus' words in the Gospel of Luke are comforting words, words that should give us reassurance and comfort, and yet imagining these things happening, people fainting from fear, doesn't give me a lot of comfort. As most of you know, I have been meeting with different individuals throughout the sermon preparation process since returning from my sabbatical. Jonathan Stanley and Jay Roth helped brainstorm some of the ideas for this sermon, and we had a wonderful time of talking and um, brainstorming. And Jay shared, with my permission, an interesting story from his childhood about texts like this. He said, there's some texts that talk about when the when the moon is as red as blood or different things like this when nature is happening and Jay said as a child he would always get so worried when he would look up at nighttime and see these red moons or or things that were being predicted in the Bible because frankly he didn't want the world to end he wanted to grow up he wanted to become a man he wanted to graduate from high school he wanted to do these things so as a child It was really tough for him to even imagine these things because, well, it would be okay if Jesus came, but maybe when he was 80 years old, he wanted to grow up. And so it it gives us a new sense of thinking about these things. Are we really open to these things coming and happening today? Even though Luke's text's open with pretty strong warnings of scary things, Jesus dares to speak to us that such a time, such a scary time as this, is actually a time of redemption. He says, now when these things begin to take place, when the earth is trembling, when people are fainting from fear, I want you, my disciples, to stand up and raise your heads Stand up and raise your heads. You're not going to be cowering in the background there. You're going to stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Wow. In the middle of these earthquakes, in the middle of this fear, we are to stand up and raise our head. You see, the function of eschatology is nothing more than to evoke committed disciples to be fervent followers of Jesus. Jesus. We live under grace, not gloom. We live with hope, not doom. So Jesus gets the message out loud and clear, like Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I'll be back. And that is the message of our Advent season. So then, if we're supposed to be focused on this coming, this time when Jesus comes, when is Jesus coming again? And we look at verse 32, and Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. But that's not really a clue, Jesus. No one knows, it says in the Bible, about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only God. Now, there are many scholars of eschatology out there who have done all the math, they've thrown the numbers together, they've read through Revelation, they've read through other texts, and they've calculated all of this, added and multiplied, and looked at the prophecies in the books of Revelation and have come up with a predicted date. Unfortunately, they don't all agree on what that predicted date is. There have been several predicted dates that have come and passed. And Jesus did not return again. Why didn't Jesus just tell us, just give us a date? Jesus doesn't want us to know the exact time of his coming. Because if we knew the day of the coming, we would calculate it we would take it easy, and we would try to have all kinds of fun and pleasure, which I think are okay. Jesus definitely wants us to have fun and pleasure, but he wants us to have fun and pleasure with a focus on him. So if we knew the day and hour, we would forget about him, except maybe that day before he were to come, or maybe even just the hour before, and then we would repent quickly and get ready for the coming Instead, Jesus warns us of his second coming, but then he says a very important point, don't worry. So as a result, we ask, how do we live as a Christian who is warned but not worried? We wait, and this Advent season of waiting is a good way for us to be reminded But our waiting is not passive. Advent is a time of waiting or expectation of looking to the future. But it's also a time of remembrance, of looking back, for recollection, for reflection. How do we live in this world today with a non-anxious presence? Now, some of the things that Pastor Ron referred to last week are good ideas to think about. How do we live in this world, in this culture, in this empire, and yet expectantly, hopefully, wait for the second coming? What difference does it make in our lives? Should we live differently? Should we wait differently? Now, Psalm 25 gives us guidance on how to wait. And in verse 5, the word wait appears to be a sort of confessional statement a way to say, I trust you, God. The intercession and confession may be seen as two ways of waiting. The psalmist waits for God a lot. And it suggests that even through the waiting, there's going to be some pain and misery, but the endurance is not the goal of the waiting. Instead, we have a long Christmas list of things that we want to do, that we want from God to turn, to be gracious, to relieve, to bring us out, to consider, to forgive, to guard, to deliver. All of these things we are asking from God is quite a request. But that's what part of Advent waiting is all about. And that's what redemption is all about, recognizing and confessing the nature of the status quo. And wanting and requesting a new status of being. The final plea in verse 7 from Psalm 25 asks that God should, on the basis of God's love and goodness, remember me. Don't remember my past. Don't remember the times that I've messed up. God, just remember me, just as I am, waiting and remembering. And so we see the beautiful pardoning grace and mercy even when we mess up. And it is that form and understanding that we can offer into our lives and into the lives of others. Now, Jesus' people are not lining up to run through an earthly anxiety machine. This whole... Passage, both in Luke and in Psalm, reminds us that we are to prepare, be, be, pray, be, be, be preparing ourselves in advance for the scrutiny and the challenges that are to come. And for Jesus, that means paying attention and approaching life with faith rather than fear. We are to be on guard. We are to identify the name and name the fears and the anxieties and the distractions of the people around us. Then we can begin to offer them hope to those around us. We can help them through towards a journey to Jesus. Be alert, Jesus says, and, and help others to do the same but our alertness may add to our anxiety. And when it does, it's time to take a step back. Take a deep breath. This Advent, I hope we all take steps back. I hope we all take deep breaths and we offer a prayer to God who does make all things new. Sometimes the best way to calm an anxious spirit to share it with God, because God reminds us in the Psalms that ultimately God is in charge. The journey, though tough, will end well, and everything will be as good as it was in the very beginning. So how will we live with the non-anxious presence of God this Advent season? We hurriedly want to get everything crossed off of our Christmas shopping list, but just at that moment when our arms are full of things to purchase at the store, the cash registers stop working in our line, and we're forced to go over to another counter, to another register, and wait in an even longer line. How will we respond? Will we offer grace and understanding or complain and show our anger. Such is the world we live in, in which God interrupts in order to intervene. Our coworkers are not doing the job as we had hoped. It's requiring more work on your end and longer hours on something that really isn't your job to begin with. Will you let the bitterness and resentment grow? Or will you find ways to show compassion and understanding? How can you find ways to be fair to you and your coworkers? Such is the world we live in, in which God interrupts in order to intervene. So many cookies to bake, errands to run, gifts to wrap, decorations to display, and just then our teenage son calls us to say he forgot his social studies assignment at home and needs us to run it over to the school immediately. How will you respond? Will you offer grace and understanding or complain and show anger? such is the world we live in, which God interrupts in order to intervene. In in an eruption of emotion, we say something to our loved ones that we wish, oh, how we wish we could take back. It's hurtful to them and to us. How will we respond? How will they respond? Will grace and redemption be offered? Will we acknowledge the pain that we caused? Is it worth the extra effort to ensure the peace between us? Such is the world we live in which God interrupts in order to intervene. As a teenager, you've been looking forward to a get-together at your best friend's house all week. On Friday afternoon, your parents find themselves in a pinch and need a babysitter for your younger siblings. You are their last resort. How will you respond? Will you offer understanding and grace or complain and show anger and bitterness? Such is the world we live in, which God interrupts in order to intervene. God is asking each of us to be alert, to be ready, but not in any fearful manner, in a way, rather, that is full of peace and understanding, to offer to the world around us a sign that the presence of God is already here and is coming in full force again. This Advent season, as we focus on waiting, may we learn to wait with new hearts. Demonstrating to the world around us, to everyone around us, what it's like to live in this world with its warnings, with its pain, with its fear. Demonstrating that we need not fear the coming of Christ. I read Philip Yancey tell a story about a trip that he took to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so my eyes we were drawn immediately to the story. He said he t- took a trip to Lancaster a number of years ago and he had dinner in an Amish home, probably some of your relatives. During the meal, the Amish persons were telling him how they chose their pastors through the lot system. They explained to Philip that the entire congregation votes for any man, and then I loved it in the story, um, in the the, uh, magazine Philip wrote, because only men are eligible in the Amish tradition. The entire congregation votes for any men who show pastoral potential. And then those three who receive the highest votes go into what they call the lot. And then hymn books are placed in front of these three men and each one opens the hymn book. And inside one of the randomly chosen hymn books is a slip of paper designating that that man has become the new pastor of the Amish church. Yancey listened to the story, and he said, what if the person selected doesn't feel qualified to become pastor? The Amish host looked puzzled, At Yancey and then replied, if he did feel qualified, we wouldn't want him. These Amish men aren't expecting a call, nor did they attempt to live in such a way to invite a call to pastoral ministry. They simply lived authentically as disciples of Christ, not worrying about calls or second comings. Jesus isn't looking for the qualified. He's looking for the willing. He isn't looking for the fearful. He's looking for the fearless. Jesus isn't looking for procrastinators. He's looking for steady practitioners of the faith. Now, some will argue that we should live each day as though it were our last, as though Jesus is coming tomorrow. But true disciples, learning from the text today, live as though it were like any other day, living faithfully, prayerfully, carefully, joyfully, and peacefully. And if we do, well then, we will be ready for Jesus whenever he comes. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.